Well, good morning on this 4th of July, kind of right before, the weekend before 4th of July, Independence Day. So glad you're worshiping with us tonight, and so so glad seeing so many of you last night as well at our uh, barbecue and bluegrass time. And so what a, what a great opportunity to get a taste of that this morning in worship as well. You know, marriage can be really difficult. Some of my greatest joys have been as a husband, but so have some of my deepest sorrows. Going through a divorce after 23 years of marriage was one of the hardest experiences I've ever gone through. And even 15 years later, uh, it still has left its mark on me. Sometimes we think that marriage is the key to happiness, but it's not. And don't get me wrong, uh, I believe in marriage. It's a good gift from God. According to the Bible, in Christian marriage, the relationship between a husband and wife is a unique picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. We, we call it a covenant. Some people call it a sacrament. But you don't have to be married to be happy. And being married doesn't guarantee that you'll be happy. Marriage can be really hard. We're currently in a series through 1 Peter called Forged in the Furnace. And in 1 Peter, we learn that the difficult experiences that we go through in our lives are like a furnace that's forging us into spiritual maturity. But what happens when your furnace is your family? Today, we're going to look at Peter's instructions to wives and husbands who are being forged in the furnace of their own marriages. So I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Beginning in verse 1, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the Word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and re reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way holy women in the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, modern readers generally have two different reactions to these verses. Some people are offended. They hear these words as a relic of a day that has gone by. Other people hear these words as a framework for how every Christian marriage should function. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that neither of those approaches is quite correct. 
So let's start with the cultural context of these verses. Peter wrote his letter and therefore wrote these words in the context of the ancient Roman Empire, which was patriarchal. Roman society operated according to a system where the man of each household held all of the power. The women and children in each household received their legal rights and their identity within Roman society from their relationship to the man in the house. Apart from a man, women and children had no legal rights and no social standing in ancient Roman culture. This is how patriarchy works. And so back then, household codes clearly defined the family roles within a household, and they were very common in Roman society. We can trace these household codes as far back as Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle said that a man should rule over his wife, his children, and his slaves. These codes were simple. Men are in charge. And the role of a wife and children and slaves was to obey the oldest man in the household. In Plato's Republic, Plato warned that properly ordered homes are essential to a properly ordered society. And so by the time Peter wrote these words, um, three or four centuries after Plato and Aristotle, Roman society demanded that households live by these household codes. To fail to follow these codes in your home was viewed as a breakdown of the traditional family, which could contribute to the breakdown of all Roman society. Now, in the New Testament, we find three Christian household codes. This one I just read in 1 Peter, and also a second one in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and a third in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul's household codes in Colossians and Ephesians mimic the same structure as Aristotle's does in his work, Politics. And at first, Paul's household codes in Ephesians and Colossians sound like they say the same thing that Aristotle says. But if you actually dig deeper, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 actually say the opposite of what Aristotle said. When talking about marriage, Paul urges husbands and wives to live in mutual submission and mutual love. The two primary commands in Ephesians 5 are Ephesians 5.21, submit yourselves to each other out of reverence for Christ, and Ephesians 5.33, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so although Paul then applies the submission command to the wife and the love commandment to the husband, these two commands are both universal commands that equally apply to both sides of the marriage. Even Paul's picture of a husband as the head of the wife is presented in Ephesians and Colossians as a way that promotes equality, love, and mutuality. Paul turns headship on its head in Ephesians and Colossians. And so what at first appears to be an endorsement of Aristotle's patriarchy is actually the opposite. And many Bible scholars believe that Paul wrote his household codes in Colossians and Ephesians on two different levels. You see, Paul wrote Colossians and Ephesians from a Roman prison cell while he was awaiting trial against the charge that his message was a threat to the stability of Roman society. 
Colossians and Ephesians are both prison letters of Paul. And so Paul wrote these household codes, so a surface reading of them would quell the common Roman anxiety that the Christian families were a threat to Roman society. But he also wrote them in a way that Christians who actually read them carefully and studied them would see that Christian families are called to live very differently than what Aristotle and others in that society. Now, when I taught through Colossians here at Glenkirk a couple of years ago, um, and I got to the household code in Colossians 3, I gave this analogy. So stick with me for this analogy. A couple of years ago, a mechanic wrote an article for Popular Mechanics about how he rebuilt the diesel engine of his 1979 Mercedes so it ran completely on vegetable oil instead of diesel fuel. Now, as you can imagine, that required a complete rebuild of the stock Mercedes engine. Now, to an outside observer, this car looks like any other 1979 Mercedes. But if you pop the hood and look at what's underneath the surface, you see that this Mercedes runs on something completely different. In Colossians and Ephesians, Paul creates household codes that look like a 79 Mercedes, but actually run on vegetable oil. Roman culture expected everyone's family to look like a 79 Mercedes. Paul wrote household codes that look like patriarchy on the outside, but that actually run on mutuality and equality when you pop the hood and look inside. But here's the thing about the household codes in Colossians and Ephesians. They assume that the husband and wife are both Christians. Peter's household code here is different. Peter is writing to Christians who are married to non-Christian spouses. And that's why he talks about wives winning over husbands who don't believe. And that's why in verse 7, he talks about husbands treating their wives as if they were heirs of the gift of life, even if they might not be. Peter is writing to a very different kind of situation than what Paul was writing to in Ephesians and Colossians. And even in a patriarchal society like the Roman Empire, this situation was particularly dangerous for Christian wives. Here's why. The values of the kingdom of God affirm that men and women are equal to each other. Uh, this is the consistent teaching of the Bible from the, the first page to the last page. And when you realize that the Bible was written in a very patriarchal cultural context, this is all the more remarkable. And we could spend weeks and weeks talking about this, but let me just give you a couple of examples. The very first chapter of the Bible affirms this. Genesis 1.27 says, God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. God created them. Men and women equally share in the image of God, side by side as partners. Men and women were created by God to reflect God's goodness and God's glory to all of creation. And it's only after the entrance of sin into the world in Genesis chapter 3 that this equality was disrupted, and only then do men begin to dominate women. Patriarchy, in all of its forms, is a consequence of sin, not part of God's original creation. 
And this is why every culture is patriarchal to some degree or another, including our own, because every culture, every society has been impacted by the consequences of sin, of Genesis 3. But the good news is that this equality between men and women is reestablished through Jesus. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. Now, that, that verse is not saying that our distinctions are erased when we become Christians. What it is saying is these distinctions, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, don't privilege us or put us at a disadvantage in the eyes of God. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women are all equal in Christ. Here's one more example, 1 Corinthians 11, 11. In the Lord, in Jesus, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. In Christ, there is a mutuality between men and women, an interdependence, a co-partnership. For followers of Jesus, the mutuality of salvation has replaced the patriarchy of sin. Now, Roman culture and Roman society could not have been more different than this. Throughout this series in 1 Peter, I've used the word Babylon to describe our world as it currently exists. And so for Peter's readers, their Babylon was the ancient Roman Empire, which spanned from Europe all the way to the Middle East. And people throughout the Roman Empire believed that men and women were not equal. This was a universal belief. It was so common, it was like the air people breathed. The ancient Greek and Roman philosophers all taught that women are inferior to men. In Plato's Republic, Plato wrote that it was part of a woman's nature to be ruled by men. In Aristotle's politics, Aristotle taught that women are less intelligent than men. The Roman moralist Plutarch said that women should never leave the family's home, but always stay inside because they're not fit for life outside the house. Now, these ideas may sound outrageous and chauvinistic to us today, but they were so universally believed back in ancient Roman society that few people actually would question them. And because of this, women had no agency apart from men. Agency is the freedom to make your own decisions. A woman who didn't live with her father or her brother or her husband was a constant target of harassment, abuse, and exploitation. This is what it's still like for women living in patriarchal societies around the world today. And this was especially difficult for women who had become Christians who were married to husbands who were not Christians. You see, in Roman society, wives were expected to worship whatever God their husband worshipped. In other words, a wife's religious identity was determined by her husband's religious choices, not by her own beliefs or her own convictions. So if your husband worshipped the god Jupiter, if you were a wife, you were expected to worship the god Jupiter as well. If the husband worshipped the, the Roman god Mars, the, the Greek goddess Diana, and the Egyptian goddess Isis, the wife was expected to worship these gods as well. 
Wives were also not allowed to have their own circle of friends. Plutarch, the Roman moralist, said that wives should be content with the company of their husband's friends. I hope you can see how the values of God's kingdom here and the values of Babylon, in this case, the Roman Empire, were very different when it comes to men and women. And in 1 Peter, Peter is writing to Christian wives who've done two things that would have been unthinkable in Roman society. Instead of worshiping their husband's gods, they're worshiping the Christian God. And that meant refusing to worship their husband's gods. Many husbands would have perceived this as an act of defiance against their authority. But also, by gathering with other Christians for prayer, teaching, and worship, these wives had developed their own circle of friends. Some of these non-Christian husbands probably thought their Christian wives were out of control. The surrounding community in these villages would have viewed these Christian wives as rebels and their non-Christian husbands as failing to do their part to keep their household in order, which contributed to the decline of the rest of society. You see, Peter is not writing a Christian marriage manual in 1 Peter 3. He's writing a survival strategy. How can Christians living in a patriarchal culture, married to non-Christian spouses, be faithful to Jesus without making their marital situation even more dangerous than it already was? So with that context in mind, let's look at what Peter actually says in these verses. In verses 1 through 6, Peter directly addresses wives, instructing them to submit themselves to their husbands. And at first, that sounds a lot like what Aristotle says. But if you actually read Aristotle, he never actually addresses wives in his writings. He, he assumes that wives would never read what he has to say. He simply tells husbands to rule over their wives. Peter, by addressing wives directly, is treating Christian wives as people with agency, the ability to make choices. Now, submission in verse 1 here is a survival strategy, just like it was in chapter 2, verse 13, where Peter uses the same word to say, all Christians should submit themselves to every human authority in society. It's a survival strategy. The best outcome for the wives Peter's writing to would be for a Christian wife in this situation for her husband to come to faith in Jesus. And then together they can build a Christian marriage based on God's values of equality and mutuality. So Peter's strategy here is evangelistic. He emphasizes the wife's behavior instead of her words because in patriarchal cultures, wives who verbally correct their husbands would have been viewed as defiant. And remember, these wives had already rejected their husband's religious faith and developed their own circle of friends. These, these, their Christian faith had significantly raised the tension in these marriages, and Peter is trying to find ways to de-escalate that tension before it explodes. After all, if these non-Christian husbands become abusive, the situation for these wives will become even worse. 
And back then, leaving an abusive marriage came with a high price. Leaving an abusive marriage meant leaving your kids behind and living life on the run, which could end up being even worse than the actual abuse. This is still what often happens to women who leave abusive marriages in patriarchal cultures. Peter is writing a survival strategy. In verse 3, Peter talks about how wives present themselves when they're outside the house. Plutarch, in, in his writing, says that husbands shouldn't buy their wives jewelry or fine clothing in an effort to keep them from ever going outside in the first place. But the specific adornments that Peter refers to in verse 3 were commonly perceived as signs of seduction or promiscuity in Roman culture, much like women wearing makeup or wearing nail polish are in some Muslim cultures today, like Iran. And at this time, Roman rumors were rampant that the early Christians were involved in all kinds of immoral behavior behind closed doors. So Peter is telling these Christian wives not to dress in public in ways that are going to add fuel to the fire of these rumors. Again, this is a survival strategy to de-escalate an already tense situation. In verse 5, Paul, Peter points to uh, Sarah's submission to Abraham as a model. And you can read all about Abraham and Sarah's marriage in chapters 12 through 25 of Genesis. And it's true that sometimes Abraham insists that Sarah follow his leadership, and she does. And if you read those stories in Genesis... Whenever Abraham insists that Sarah follow his lead, he leads them into a bad situation that God has to rescue them from. And there are times in Genesis when Sarah insists that Abraham follow her lead. And if you read those stories in Genesis, same thing happens. Sarah leads them into bad situations that God has to rescue them from. In Genesis, Abraham and Sarah's best marital decisions appear to be made mutually. Now, Paul's words to husbands in verse 7 are much briefer than what he says to wives. Some of the Christian men in the church were married to non-Christian wives. And in a patriarchal context, a husband's situation was far less dangerous than a wife's situation. The most significant challenge for a Christian husband would be a wife who just went along for with his faith because it was socially expected, but she didn't really believe in Jesus. Now, because Roman society was patriarchal, in Christian households, husbands still held most of the power in the marriage. And that's probably what Peter means when he uses the phrase weaker partner. He's not saying that women are inferior, and it's possible he's talking about physical strength, but I think Peter's also talking about the social condition of wives living in Roman society. See, for husbands, just by virtue of being born a man in Roman society, husbands had certain social rights and privileges that their wives didn't have. And this put Husbands in a position of advantage as the stronger partner in the marriage, at least in the eyes of society. And so Peter is saying that Christian husbands shouldn't use their advantage, their privilege, to dominate their wives. Instead, a Christian husband should treat his non-Christian wife the same way he'd treat his Christian wife, as a fellow heir, the gift of life. 
Christian husbands should be considerate instead of demanding, respectful instead of contemptuous. Refusing to treat their wives well will not only hurt their marriage, but it will also hurt their spiritual lives. A Christian husband's prayers will be hindered if he treats his wife poorly, and by implication, his prayers will flourish if he treats his wife considerately and respectfully. See, in these verses, Peter is trying to find common ground between the values of God's kingdom and the values of Babylon. Virtues like submission, purity, gentleness, quietness, consideration, respect. These are all biblical values. But these were also values that were treasured in ancient Roman society. Now, in the Bible, none of these values is gender-specific, where it only applies to men, but it doesn't apply to women, or only applies to women, but doesn't apply to men. All Christians are called to live by these values. Peter is trying to show Christians, married to non-Christians, how to be faithful to Jesus, while at the same time de-escalating marital tension and silencing outside criticism of the Christian faith. Again, this is a survival strategy, not a marriage manual. So let me give you three real quick applications of this passage. First, since men and women are equal, in Christian marriage, husbands and wives are called to mutuality. Husbands and wives are called to mutuality. This is the Christian vision of marriage we find in Ephesians and Colossians. And if you want to learn more about those household codes in Ephesians and Colossians, I encourage you to watch my messages from those passages on the Glenkirk YouTube channel. I've put links to those two messages in this week's study guide. And so if you go to glenkirkchurch.org and click the banner for the First Peter series, you can find that study guide. And it has links to those two messages out of Ephesians and Colossians. Second, Christians married to non-Christians should let their lives bear witness to the truth of the gospel. Should let their lives bear witness. Submission in this passage is a survival tactic to de-escalate boiling tension. But even in less patriarchal societies, our lives always speak louder than our words. How we live bears witness to the truth of the gospel far more than mere words alone. Let your life speak. And third, Christians married to non-Christians should treat their spouse with respect. Respect. This is a challenging passage to untangle. But it's still God's word to us. It's God's revelation of himself and how to live. And when we consider the cultural context of 1 Peter 3, I think it's clear that God has revealed this as a survival strategy for Christians married to non-Christian spouses in contexts that are dangerous. Now, some well-meaning Christians not understanding this cultural background have structured their marriages more like Aristotle than the Bible. To go back to my analogy, um, some Christian marriages today have marriages that don't just look like a 79 Mercedes on the outside, but if you pop the hood, you'll find their marriage is fueled by patriarchy instead of mutuality. And this is the opposite of what the Bible intends or teaches. 
Now, before I close and we sing and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, let me say one more thing. The Bible says that Christians should not leave their marriage just because their spouse is not a Christian. 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that in general, we should remain in whatever condition we find ourselves in when we come to faith in Jesus. Having a spouse who doesn't believe in Jesus is not a reason to leave an otherwise good marriage. But this passage from 1 Peter 3 has sometimes been misused to urge people who are unsafe in their marriage to remain there. So let me say this as clearly as I can. If you are not safe in your marriage, you need to get yourself to safety. In the United States, one in three women and one in four men have experienced physical violence from a partner. And abuse isn't always physical. Sometimes it's verbal, emotional. Sometimes it's financial. And women in our culture today have options available to them that wives living in Roman society that Peter wrote to never could have dreamed of. Peter's survival strategy in 1 Peter 3 was for wives trapped with no options. And there are millions of Christian women all around the world today in that same kind of situation today. But in our culture, we do have options. So if you are not safe, whether you're a man or a woman, get yourself safe. There are resources available like the Domestic Abuse Hotline or the House of Ruth and other places. And please know that we as a church will support anyone who leaves an unsafe home environment to find safety. Yes, marriage is hard. And every marriage has its ups and downs. But if the line crosses from being hard to being unsafe or abusive... It's time to get yourself to safety. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And even when your word is challenging to understand, thank you that through your spirit and through your people, you guide us. And Father, I think of all those around the world and even in our own culture that are trapped in situations that are dangerous and unsafe. And on this week, when we celebrate freedom and liberty, we thank you that that freedom and liberty includes finding safety. And Lord, we pray for marriages. We pray for Christian marriages, that you would strengthen and nurture them that they would reflect the equality and mutuality that you, you reveal in your word. And we pray for those married to those who don't know you, that their lives would speak and that you would draw unbelieving spouses into a relationship with you. And as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, we thank you for Jesus who came to our world to show us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that the distinctions that we make in society and that society makes about us don't privilege us or disadvantage us, but the, we all come 
as needy sinners in need of your grace, which you so freely offer through Christ. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.